Oh my god! Yeah, we're doing it. Are how nervous are you? Oh, I'm like so nervous. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pretend we're just having coffee together or something. Totally. I think that's the vibe <laughs> we're going for. <laughs> okay, perfect. So I'm gonna I'm gonna introduce you after we do our like. Yeah, uh, hi, my name is Nicholas Quan Thing. I'll be like, yeah, so Jacob's Jacob's taking a break. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm always a little bit nervous, but I'm pretty used to it at this point, right? Okay, professional. Yeah. Profesh. Profesh. Yeah. I mean, it's nothing compared to composing and performing my own music. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Let's do it. So we can start. Hi, this is Nicholas Quan, and this is Annie Kim, and you're listening to I Had No Idea. I got you. Yeah, yeah. I'll just sing the whole thing. <laughs> this is perfect. So this is going to be part of the episode, by the way. That was perfect. <laughs> I love it. So uh, everybody, in case you haven't noticed, um, there's actually a woman with me today. This is not Jacob with like a feminine voice all of a sudden. Uh, Jacob's <laughs> taking a little bit of a break from I had no idea just to focus on his studies. And like you know, he's pretty dumb. So he needs all the focus and time he needs to learn Hebrew or whatever <laughs> he is doing. <laughs> so instead of Jacob Peck, I have the beautiful Annie Kim with me today. How are you, Annie? Hi, I am a huge fan. I'm so excited to be here. I listen to every single episode you guys put out. I'm so happy you, Jacob, did this. It's a genius podcast idea with really no boundaries. I feel like you guys can do whatever you want. Talk about whatever uh, you want. Yeah, almost no boundaries. Like, we try to keep it PG. I mean, we don't mm. succeed every time, but we, we try. I love that one episode that uh, Jacob offends everyone and just... Drives away all hockey fans and Americans. <laughs> <laughs> he does something like that every episode. I was I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, we would have more listeners if maybe you did the episode with me every time. <laughs> so I'm glad you're here. I'm Thank glad you're you here. for having me. Yeah, totally. Okay, Annie. So tell us about your topic today. What, what do you have in store for us? So, Nick, before I tell you my topic, I'm going to send you a photo on Facebook. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. So, can you explain what you see? Yeah, sure. Uh, 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 oh, are those the murder hornets? Yes! Oh, those look crazy. Okay. I'm so happy you knew that. <laughs> um, I don't know if you saw this on the news recently, but my topic is going to be about the Vespa Mandarinia, which is aka the murder hornets or Asian giant hornet, and kind of all about the fuss that they're causing lately and some things I think people should know about them. Yeah, uh, a, a, lot so, of, a lot of bad things are coming from Asia these days, <laughs> like coronavirus, these wasps, it's, yeah. It's so scary. Um, so yeah, there's actually two types of these hornets. Uh, one is called the Vespa Velatunia, uh, or the yellow-legged hornet, which is originated in Europe. And then there's a second one called the Vespa Mandarinia, which is originated in Japan. So that's the one I'm going to be talking about. Okay, cool. That sounds yeah. wicked. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to learning more about these things. Like, they look terrifying. Um, and, and I've seen how large they are. Like even your picture, you know, like four of them cover an entire adult hand. That's crazy. Oh, oh, it's so scary. But you know, I know Jacob or you talked about insects last week, so I guess we're going to stay on the bug train. Yes, let's do it. I'm excited to hear what you have to say about that. 
Yes. Yeah, How about you? Yeah, for me. Um, well, I have a question for you first. Have you ever yeah. thought about like how weirdly lonely humans are in the universe? Weirdly lonely. I feel like, I don't know, is this too deep? Like talking about social media era and how we're like lonelier than ever. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Is it like well, that? Am I getting too deep? <laughs> well, maybe not deep enough. I don't know. I guess it depends on your perspective. But oh, no, I was more enough. thinking about just like in the scope of the universe. So like how we haven't really found um, any other intelligent life out there except ourselves. And yes. I think that's, yeah, it's kind of weird, right? Mm-hmm. I think about that sometimes when I like look at astronomy and like planets. It's yeah. kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So like no matter how much our telescopes improve and how far we send our space probes, humanity has come up empty so far in its search for other intelligent life. And to me, what makes our loneliness really puzzling is just like the sheer size of the universe, right? So today, experts estimate that there are about 170 billion galaxies minimum in the observable universe. Um, I even found like a Forbes article from 2017 suggesting that the limits of our technology is causing us to underestimate the number of galaxies out there, with some astrophysicists thinking that there are around 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. But for now... Yeah, yeah, like, that's crazy, right? But for now, let's run with the 170 billion galaxy estimate. With that assumption, experts estimate that there are about one sextillion stars in the universe. And for those wondering, that's 10 to the power of 21. Or in other words, it's 1 billion multiplied by 1 trillion. <laughs> you sound like such a nerd. <laughs> I, I am a nerd. That's why I'm doing this podcast. And I think that's why you're on this podcast too, you nerd. <laughs> you're right, you're right, you're right. Wow. Yeah. Okay, 10 trillion. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's 1 billion multiplied one billion by 1 trillion. Trillion. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So this means that there are more stars in the galaxy than there are grains of sand on Earth. Now, given the number of stars in the universe, like how many planets must be out there as well? And like statistically speaking, I feel like at least one of them has the necessary conditions to host intelligent life, right? No, but like, yeah. what if Earth really, <laughs> what if Earth really is that much of a fluke? I know. I feel like we're so unique. Oh, yeah, I, that's I always right. think I'm like, what if there's like other Earths like us out there that think they're just as unique as us? We're all trying to find each other. Yeah, and like somehow we haven't found any other intelligent life out there. And another thing that makes this puzzling is just like how like old the universe is. It's almost 13.8 billion years old. So you think there'd be something else out there by now. So that's what I really want to look into this week. Like I want to understand the exact conditions that made Earth so habitable. And I think there is a lot more to it than us just being like the perfect distance away from the sun. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's just like my feeling. So I wanted to really look into that. That's so cool. All right. So with that, we are going to take a quick break. And we'll be right back and talk about what we learned. Today's episode is made possible by Goodbye Fresh, the only company that makes you money for donating your fresh food. Just get those fresh ingredients you purchased from the grocery store, look up your favorite dinner recipe, and put all the necessary ingredients in a box. Leave the box outside your door, and a Goodbye Fresh agent will come pick it up right away and leave you a wad of cash. It's like the Tooth Fairy, but for adults. Sign up today with promo code NOIDEA to get a one-month free trial at goodbyefresh.com. 
Just leave an empty box outside with our promo code NOIDEA and just leave an empty box outside your door and make money for free. Again, that's goodbyefresh.com slash NOIDEA to get your one month free trial today. We're back. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Yeah, we're back. I like the enthusiasm uh, and the we're, brevity. We're back. <laughs> yeah. So, Nick, I'm not good at this. No, you're doing perfectly fine. <laughs> would you like to go first today or would you like me to? Whatever you're more comfortable with. Um, okay, I can go first just to get out of the way. <laughs> sure. <laughs> awesome. So, um, my topic is on the murder hornets. So, the actual name of the hornet is called Asian giant hornet and sometimes called murder hornets, and originated in Japan. So as for geography, they actually prefer living in low mountains and forests, so completely avoiding all plains and high-altitude climates. And their location right now uh, is native to East and South Asia. So they were recently found in the Pacific Northwest of North America, specifically Vancouver Island and Washington State, which is pretty close by. Too close to and home. I know. And in September 2019, a nest was found in Nanaimo, Vancouver, and was subsequently destroyed, apparently. Um, so there are supposed to be, there's no reports that they have settled in North America yet. But um, yeah, there's a huge squad dedicated to these bugs. But as for the size, uh, murder hornets actually grow to 1.8 inches. And the queen can actually grow well over two inches with a That's wingspan of three inches. So gross. That's so gross. And a stinger of six millimeters long. <laughs> wow. You know yeah. what? I, I heard getting stung by one of these things is like getting shot. I, I assume so. Um, they are the largest hornet in the world. And its stinger can actually inject a large amount of potent venom into its victims. Uh, like normal bees, though, males don't have stingers and only females do. Gotcha. Yeah. So let me give you some facts about it and then I'll go into kind of what the government's doing and some things that they're doing to try to get rid of it. So unlike most bee or hornet species, murder hornets actually only build their hives underground. So watch oh. out where you're stepping. That's, yeah, that's scarier somehow, because I feel like part of what makes it easy to spot a hive is that it's just like up in the air, like on a tree branch or something. Mm-hmm. So they're they're more like discreet and underground. I feel like they're smarter, but um, they actually can reach speeds up to or fly speeds up to 40 kilometers an hour and can fly over 100 kilometers a day. So they're getting their cardio in and they're as fast as your car on a slow day. So uh, the the murder hornet stinger is actually really long and hard. It's sharp enough to pierce a traditional beekeeping outfit and can they obviously can sting humans, but they don't lose their stinger when stinging and they can sting multiple times. These things suck. I know. Um, so usually they generally won't attack unless they're bothered. Um, but they are also the only species that will give you a warning before they attack. So they'll fly back and forth, snapping their mandibles, which is like their little teeth. Uh, to Pincers. Intimidate you. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I don't want to scare anyone, but the murder hornets, the sting contains enough venom to actually kill an adult human being. 
So <laughs> I think you're around... failing at not scaring anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be afraid. But, uh, you know, around 30 to 50 people in Japan are killed every year by these hornets. Um, while a city in China experienced 41 deaths and 1,600 injuries in 2013. The deaths are primarily related to cardiac arrest or anaphylactic shock from their stings, uh, although they can also cause kidney failure or even multiple organ failures. I think sharks kill like three people a year around the world. And you're talking I about know. like, uh, what, like uh, 15 times higher death count in Japan alone? Oh my god! I know, and I've I've never heard of these, right? So, I'm shocked. Yeah, these are intensely predatory bugs, and they primarily eat. So their diet is bees, other hornets, and mantises. And their larvae actually eat other bee larvae, which is, you know, the bees' babies. And that leads to adults to hunt for beehives and other hornet colonies to bring their larvae back to their hives. So these guys so, are like cannibals. I know. It's so it's so scary. It's so like, I don't know, gory. Right. <laughs> it's like if humans had like a larger, stronger, smarter, faster versions of themselves and all they ate were human. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's Attack on Titan. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so they actually can kill as many as 40 honeybees in a minute due what? to its large mandibles. <laughs> and their honeybee stings are honeybee stings are actually ineffective to them because the hornets are five times larger and heavily armored. But not to scare anybody. Yeah, yeah, it's not it's okay. Um, but a small pack of murder hornets, maybe 30 to 50, can exterminate a colony of 30,000 honeybees in only a few hours which is insane. Um, so you might be thinking, what's the government doing about this? It's a pretty <laughs> big problem. Right. <laughs> so I looked into that, and murder hornets are considered widely invasive, and the Washington State Department of Agriculture has launched a full-scale hunt to destroy any hives. So if established, they said that the hornets could decimate bee populations in the U.S. and establish a deep presence that all hope for eradication could be lost. Wow. Okay. So it's a pretty big deal. We need our bees to, you know, you know, bees are really important to society. Yeah, totally. So, I love honey. Yeah. Me too. I love raw honey. Raw honey's the best. I, I actually don't know the difference, uh, to be honest. No? No. <gasps> like Nick, there's so many honey types. Um yeah, raw honey tastes the best. Um, Manuka honey is the most expensive, and you can use it as a face mask. Ah. <laughs> can you it's, eat it, and too? The most yeah, you can. It's the most <laughs> antibacterial. Yeah, That's awesome. It's amazing. Yeah, it'll keep you young. It's like an anti-aging thing. Nice. Um, yeah, so I heard that there are police forces like dedicated to just these hornets, which is such a crazy thing to me. And I'm not sure what they're called, but I think it's called a sting operation. That's funny. <laughs> That's very punny of them. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, although North American and European honeybees have no innate defense towards these hornets, because they didn't biologically evolve with them, right? Because they were, they were originating in Japan. So they actually don't know how to defend themselves. But on the other hand, Japanese honeybees do know how to defend themselves. Do tell. So they have an effective strategy. So Japanese honeybees are smart, just like Japan is. <laughs> and, why, why are you um, laughing at that? 
Yeah, because they're, they're, it's so funny. It's like the bees just like their people. Um, <laughs> they're so advanced, you know? Gotcha. Um, but yeah, they're kind of just like, we know how to fight these hornets. Bring it on. Like, it's amazing. So when Japanese honeybees actually detect the pheromones of an approaching murder hornet scout, a hundred or so of the honeybees will gather at the entrance of their hive and leave it wide open. So it's setting up a trap. So when the hornets enter the hive, hundreds of bees will surround it in a ball, completely covering them up. And the bees will basically like come together and vibrate their flight muscles in the same way that they would to heat up the hive during the winter. And this raises the temperature inside the ball to about 46 degrees Celsius, 115 Fahrenheit, and increases the CO2 level inside the ball where the hornets are in. And... I don't know if you knew this, but honeybees can survive up to 50 degrees Celsius slash 122 Fahrenheit, mm -hmm. but hornets cannot. Ah. So they all die in the high temperature in the CO2 levels. Wow. So, yeah. So some bees die along with the hornet, but they are able to prevent them from calling reinforcements and protect the larger colony, which is great. Um, so, yeah, isn't that crazy? Japanese honeybees are just working together to protect themselves. Um, I wonder how they even figure that out. Like, uh, I know. you know, how many different strategies that they take until they figure that that was the one that would work. It's, it's amazing. They just like vibrate their little bodies <laughs> and raise the temperature. It's like crazy. Yeah, and then cool. they burn their, they burn their predators. Um, so Japanese officials have actually noticed that Japanese honeybees and murder hornets have developed a strategy to avoid, you know, avoid running into each other, avoid expensive and mutually unprofitable conflicts so when bees detect a scouting hornet they can release a signal saying i see you which will often warn them off so it's like there's a mini war going on that we can't see it's like it's very cool how they have this agreement right. kind of from living alongside each other in japan um so that's one way that they kind of avoid that conflict oh that's really cool so, like, those murder hornets, they will try to eat the Japanese honeybees, but, like, I guess they figure that they, they have easier targets available, and they'll try to avoid <laughs> eating the Japanese honeybee in particular, and, like, maybe try some yeah. other bees. Oh, that's pretty smart. Seems like they've got it figured out. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Those <laughs> yeah. smart Japanese bees. Yes. Um, so, maybe that's why they're coming closer to Canada, because the Japanese kicking them out. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... Yeah, Japanese officials have actually developed several methods to deal with them, um, although none of them have been very successful. Um, one of them is hornets don't counterattack when in the middle of a hive attack, but they'll aggressively defend a beehive once it's taken it over. But hornets will sometimes be crushed with wooden sticks while attacking, but it's not very time efficient and hard to locate. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> the second one is destroying the nest with fires or poison. That's effective during the night. Um, however, they can travel over 100 kilometers, like I said before, and they generally travel eight kilometers away from their hive, making it hard to follow them back. Um, the third thing they've tried is sometimes they'll leave traps at the openings of beehives during an attack that allows bees to escape, but not the hornets. Uh, then they'll be left there to die. However, some murder hornets have been examined um, managing to escape through other ways, which is kind of freaky. <laughs> making those traps ineffective. Um, 
And the last thing they've tried is if met by resistance, um, the hornets will lose the will to attack. So weeds, wires, fishing wires can be placed to trap murder hornets while allowing bees to pass. However, experienced hornets will catch on to these traps and will actually wait on the traps for bees to enter to pass through so they can get them. Oh my god. Okay, you know what this reminds me of? Have you seen Black Mirror? Yes! Do you know that bee episode where, like, they have all those robotic bees working and then someone hacks the robotic bees to, like, all just, like, target people, like, saying crap on Twitter? So the bees are robots and they're used to... Yeah, so this is like (laughs) some parallel universe where the bees have gone extinct, but then some company produces these robotic bumblebees to, or I guess like hornets too, I don't know, I don't know too much about them, but like they pretty much harvest the world's honey in in place of natural bees that have gone extinct. And then some hacker finds out how to program them to target individuals and kill them. And no matter what the individuals did to hide from these bees, they just like found a way into their homes or like whatever container they're in. And they would just like go after the people and like eventually kill them. So that's what... What? Yeah. Oh my god. That's what this kind of reminds me of. Yeah. Black Mirror (laughs) is the future. (laughs) Hopefully not. Yeah. Hopefully no one programs murder hornets. Have you ever been stung by anything? Oh, yeah. A few times. A few times. Okay. I've never been stung by a bee or really? anything, really. It really sucks. So I don't know what it feels it like. It really sucks. <laughs> I think the first time I ever got stung was when I was 12. I was camping with some friends, um, and I was just lying down, just, like, sunbathing on, like, a cliffside, and then mm-hmm. I just felt, like, something crawling on, on my torso, like, on my side. And then I just like wanted to rub it away with my hand. But then as I swiped it, I guess it started panicking and stung me right in the side. And it really, and, and I, I didn't know what to do. Like people were like, you got to suck the venom out. And I'm like, well, I can't reach the (laughs) side of my torso. So do you want to do it for me? And they're like, nah, pass. (laughs) Ouch. That's a sensitive area too. (laughs) Yeah, it sucked. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, I have yet to be stung, and I I avoid it at all all costs. You're so lucky. (laughs) I know. Um, Yeah, other than that, um, some Japanese villages eat the larvae as a delicacy when they're fried. In other regions, they're eaten as snacks or ingredients in drinks um, because apparently they give, like, a really potent taste. Um, and the adults are sometimes skewered and with stinger and all and fried until the body becomes crunchy. Nice. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm never so trying that. No need to panic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No panicking. It's just good to know these things. <laughs> and yeah, that's my topic. Nice. Um, just one question before uh, we move on to my topic. I don't know if you'll know the answer to this, but have you ever seen anything like anything you read online that indicates like how these hornets made it from japan to the united states and canada i have no idea i'm i assume maybe underground <laughs> wait, 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 no, that's not possible <laughs> i don't know because their hives are underground so maybe they like dug up one day and they're like oh we're in the states <laughs> like looney tunes <laughs> yeah. nice all right Maybe they fly here. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. That'd be crazy. Yeah, but I think they're um, estimating that they will be in Canada in like five years. And they're really trying to avoid that. Oh, wait. I thought you said that they arrived in BC. Or did I mishear you? 
Or not Canada. What am I saying? Ontario. Yes. Oh, okay. That's going to be nuts. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I'm moving uh, in five years. That's the plan. <laughs> That's the new plan. <laughs> it's okay. Maybe we'll get like, did you hear um, Bill Gates? He's like thinking of making like robotic mosquitoes to get rid of mosquitoes. That makes no sense. But if Bill Gates says it makes sense, then I guess it does. It does make sense because they, because they, what he's saying, because he, they're trying to get rid of mosquitoes because he thinks that there's like no purpose for them. So they're working on developing like robot mosquitoes so they can mate with the mate with the mosquitoes and then kill them. That's very cruel. I know. It's sad, but like maybe that'll happen with the, these guys as well. Right. Yeah. We have no sympathy for mosquitoes. I mean, like <laughs> if that happened to us, it would totally suck, but... You know, these are mosquitoes. I know. <laughs> mosquitoes are, yeah, a little bit useless. But anyways, yes, thanks for listening. <laughs> no problem. That was awesome. All right. So my topic. So my topic, it's pretty much like what makes Earth so habitable relative to maybe all the other planets in the universe that we know of mm -hmm. so far. So I think like the best way to tackle this question is to first examine like how the Earth was formed. Like, under what conditions gave Earth just the right temperature, the oxygen-rich atmosphere that it has, the water it has, etc. Like, anything that really enables life to thrive. Mm -hmm. And what we hypothesize is that Earth is actually the product of a long string of accidents that, to me, are, like, nothing short of miracles. So, let's start with the formation of our solar system. So, 4.54 billion years ago, our solar system, it was just this giant cloud of dust and particle, particles known as the solar nebula. Hey, don't laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Due to gravity, things started spinning around and hitting each other and merging together. And eventually the sun becomes the center of our solar system due to its high mass, density, and powerful gravitational pull. And along with the sun, lots of other celestial bodies, including the Earth, form around it. Now, out of sheer luck, the Earth, it forms at like the perfect distance away from the sun. That makes Earth not too hot and not too cold. It's within a range from the sun known as the Goldilocks zone or the habitable zone. So being an appropriate distance away from the sun is clearly key. But no, like what else is there? You know, that was my original question. Well, mm -hmm. the composition of our planet and its activities were also pretty key. Early on in our planet's history, Earth was this chaotic place. It was covered in all these active volcanoes, and it had like all these comets and other celestial objects hitting the Earth. And what this did was it added all this new matter to our planet, including ice. Now, try to picture our planet for a second in these early days, so like four and a half billion mm -hmm. years ago. Because of all these active volcanoes, the Earth's surface was fiery and abundant in magma. And what happens to magma when it's cooled down? Well, it turns into various rocks, metals, and dust. So we think that this ice and these other celestial bodies brought to Earth a cooling effect, really. And it cooled down the magma in such a way that it formed the Earth's crust. Another thing we think it did is that it melted and became water. So all that ice that all these comets were bringing into Earth melts, and it created what we think are oceans and lakes. And at the same time, these volcanoes didn't just release magma, but also gases from the Earth's core and into the atmosphere. And over time, these gases, they, they just formed the Earth's atmosphere as we know it today, or like the beginnings of Earth's atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And along with this ice that the comets brought, we think one particular comet 
about the size of Mars played like the most important role of all. So our hypothesis today is basically, we think the Earth was struck by such force by this giant comet that it actually tilted the Earth, causing the diagonal orientation that it has today. Um, it has a slight tilt of 23.4 degrees. And this is significant because it created seasons on Earth and therefore a lot more potential for life. It also caused the Earth to be a lot cooler at the poles, so the North Pole and the South Pole, and it expedited how quickly the Earth cooled overall. Mm. Now around 3.8 billion years ago, the Earth eventually cooled enough to form its first life forms. And 1.8 billion years after that, we see the first photosynthetic life form as well. And it created this oxygen-rich atmosphere for even more life to form. So all these plants were absorbing the gases from the air and then it converted into oxygen and eventually it created the atmosphere as we know it today. And this oxygen, uh, it also interacted with the sunlight and I'm not going to interact or I'm not going to describe for you like exactly how the sun interacts with this oxygen to form the ozone layer, but that's what it did. And it protects us from the sun's lethal radiation. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that like one comet caused all this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like not even the end of it. So this giant comet, it had like one more significant impact on the planet, like no pun intended. Uh, we, th uh -huh. we think that this comet actually hit Earth and threw so much debris into outer space that it ended up forming our moon when all of that came together. What? Yeah, it's insane. That's like the current hypothesis on like how the moon exists. So a giant comet hits us, tilts the Earth, launches a bunch of chunk into space and then it makes our moon and basically yeah like once all this debris in space uh fused together it formed our moon and it created as a result one of the few sources of natural light that we have at night and also the second brightest object we have in our sky and this was obviously very helpful for our human ancestors when it came to navigation um, and as a random aside, we also have something called the North Star, which coincidentally has been positioned at perfect true north for humanity's entire existence. And this star, officially called Polaris, was essential for our ancestors' nighttime navigation. And uh, in a few hundreds of thousands of years, Polaris will no longer be true north at all. But obviously now we have the proper instruments to tell us where true north is. So we were lucky in that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just like one last thing about the moon, uh, the moon also exerts some of its gravity on Earth and is actually a stabilizing force for our planet. And without it, we think, or experts think, that our tilt would be more extreme, uh, as far as 45 degrees, which means the Earth would be spinning on its sides instead of its poles. And I'm like not certain what the implication of that would be, but we would be looking at a completely different world if the moon didn't exist. Interesting. And finally, as a planet, we're actually really lucky that we haven't been like hit by a significant comet at this point, at least since humanity's existence. We think one hit a long time ago and caused the mass extinction for the dinosaurs, but since then we haven't really had a significant one. And one of the main reasons for this is that Jupiter actually protects us from a lot more potential comets than we think. So a lot more would be hitting Earth had it not been for this giant body of a planet protecting us from a number of these comets heading towards Earth. And if 
Yay. Yeah, and if like a single one of those things like <laughs> hit Earth, it would actually cause like mass extin- extinction on the planet. We actually came. Oh, sorry. Did you say want to say something? No, just thanks to Jupiter. Yeah, thank you, Jupiter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, despite Jupiter's presence, we actually came close a number of times to getting hit by a sizable comet. And the most recent example of this is March 22nd in 1989, when a 100-meter comet flew towards Earth. And it actually flew so close to Earth that it passed the exact location Earth was at just six hours prior. So (laughs) if that comet arrived six hours earlier, it would have directly hit Earth. And considering like the scale of the universe, that's actually an incredibly small amount of space, given that scale, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, so to me, it's like, it's clear that there's so much required for intelligent life to exist. Like, it it really does feel like we're a complete fluke after doing this research. And I guess Mm -hmm. we can't expect every planet in these, like, so-called Goldilocks zones to form life, I guess. And I think like all Earthlings should probably consider themselves lucky to be alive. So that's it for me. Yeah, that's it for me. Very miraculous stuff, in my opinion. Wow. Have you always been into like the, you know, like the universe? Could could you tell? (laughs) Like like the planets and stuff? Yeah. As a kid, I read a lot about space and I wanted to be an astronaut when I was really young. Um, And then you quickly learn that you have to be really smart and really fit. And I was neither of those things. (laughs) (laughs) I really like learning about life in space and like how they do things there. It's pretty fascinating. We've, um, we've come a long way for sure. Like we have space probes that are like 20 billion kilometers away at this point. And like the fact that we've achieved so much as like, uh, as a species, I guess it's like, I think it's incredible and I would have loved to be a part of it, but yeah. Alas, I'm just a regular Joe. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're special, Nick. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Eddie. All right. Uh, Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, I hope you liked this special episode with our special guest, Annie Kim, here today. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you. Yeah. uh, Do you think you're going to come back? Sure. (laughs) Really? Oh, incredible. Anytime. Anytime. Wow. (laughs) All right. Yeah, thank you for your topic. It was so cool. So today... We covered the topics of those Japanese murder hornets, and we also looked at what makes Earth so habitable. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please follow us on Instagram at IHadNoIdea.podcast. Feel free to DM us with your suggestions or any feedback that you have or tell us why you hated it. doesn't matter. Thank you so much for listening. Till the end of this episode, we appreciate it so, so much, especially for Annie Kim's debut. Nick, you have a great podcast voice. Thank you. Like, I never liked the sound of my own voice, but I don't think anyone does. I don't. Such a natural. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. All right. So we're signing off now, Annie. So if you had no, oh, so if you had no idea, now you do. Now you do. Oh, you (laughs) messed it up. All right. (laughs) Now you do. Let's do a fast one. All right. So if you had no idea, now you do. No (laughs) way. Do half slow and half the other half fast. So, if you had no idea, now you do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Perfect. Now you do. All right. <laughs> See you, everybody. Thanks for listening.